Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 71, Brother vs. Brother. No new Patreon supporters at the moment. Well, these things seem to come in waves. You either get a bunch or none. So, as always, consider supporting the show uh, and getting in touch. I'd also really like to thank History Time, which is a really, really good uh, YouTube channel. And, you know, recently I've become a big fan of History Time, uh, History Marsh, Kings and Generals. A lot of these kind of up-and-coming history-based kind of YouTube channels. And... I decided to kind of go back through a bunch of my favorite ones and find all the content that they've created that relates to the periods and the people and the events that we cover here in the podcast. And so I spent a lot of time going back into all the old episodes and adding those links, adding kind of embedded YouTube videos in a lot of them. So if you go back through the old podcast episodes or if your friend or someone you know is listening through for the first time, really encourage them to check out the website, bghistorypodcast.com. And in addition to what's always been there, which has been maps and images, now we've got a lot of YouTube videos. And for the last couple episodes and in the future, there's also a list of major characters and a timeline in each of those. And if you've got ideas, you know, I'm always looking for things to add more so I can make each of those episode pages even more rich and useful and just kind of enhance the content for all of you. So check that out. Um, and also a quick little teaser. Uh, I can't be too specific. I don't want to reveal too much, but Kings and Generals in particular is working on a series about a famous Bulgarian ruler. And I helped a little bit in creating that series, and it's going to come out soon. So that is another reason to definitely go subscribe to History Time and Kings and Generals. Both of them coming out with some good stuff in the future. So check them out. All right, last time. A major Ottoman and Wallachian raid into Transylvania was brutally defeated by Hungary, leading to some chaos in Wallachia as the powers of the region each kind of jockeyed for influence there. Then... The Ottomans were back on the offensive, with a failed invasion of Rhodes, the island uh, kind of on the border between the Aegean and Mediterranean, but a successful invasion of southern Italy. But the Italian dream of the Ottomans was crushed when Sultan Mehmed II was probably poisoned by his son and, in any case, died, leading to the loss of the Ottoman foothold in Italy as the Ottomans were distracted and the beginning of an Ottoman civil war between half-brothers Bayezid II and Cham Sultan. Now we left off as Bayezid had claimed the throne in Constantinople, rejected an offer to split the empire with his half-brother, and defeated that half-brother, forcing him to flee to Cairo. Now, the question is what the Mamluks, the sultanate ruling Cairo and Egypt, will do. Initially, Cham was well received by the Mamluk Sultan, but instead of taking this moment to, say, gather an army, well, Cham went on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, which I believe is happening right now. In the meantime, events in Wallachia were unfolding in June of 1481, just as news of Mehmet's death was spreading through the region, and Stephen of Moldavia invaded Wallachia. 
Clearly, the deal he had made to resume paying tribute didn't mean much with a dead sultan in the looming Ottoman civil war. Stephen quickly defeated Basarab Tepeles Chiltanar and replaced him with Vlad Chalugarul. Vlad, the impaler's half-brother. Now, this was ironically just four years after Stephen invaded Wallachia to install Basarab Tepeles Chiltanar in the first place, but no doubt he hoped that Vlad would prove a more loyal ally. Of course, Bayezid had no time to respond to all of this. His overriding concern was still his half-brother in Cairo. Before resorting to a military response, he wanted to try more financial means. And so he sent a letter to his half-brother, offering one million akshe, the Ottoman currency. I tried to work out the value at the time, and best I could find is that this was worth maybe 12,000 dukats. Remember, the Venetians, for comparison, paid the Ottomans 10,000 ducats a year for the right to trade in the Black Sea. So that gives us an idea of you know, just more than what the Venetians paid for their annual use of the Black Sea. So not a massive amount of money to the Ottoman treasury, but not nothing. Anyways, that's what uh, Cham was offered to renounce his claim to the Ottoman throne, and he refused. Instead, he went to eastern Anatolia and gathered an army with his ally, the heir to the Karamanids. Now, quick point, the Karamanids were not as powerful as they once were, but they were still able to pull together an army to challenge Constantinople and the Ottomans. By May, Cham and his Karamanid allies were approaching the vital Anatolian city of Konya, remember the old Seljuk capital, uh, and they were ready to put it under siege. But Bayezid was not simply waiting for events to happen. He was now feeling secure enough on his throne to begin to get a little more aggressive, both against his brother and in reaction to the events in Wallachia. He sent a force to assist Basareb Tepadesh Chiltanar in retaking the throne. At the same time, an Ottoman army was heading to meet Cham in Konya. They won that particular engagement, forcing the younger brother to retreat to Ankara. There, his plan was to return to Cairo and work out the next stage of what he would do, but his escape was blocked by Bayezid, who clearly had no intention of letting his brother escape and cause him even more trouble. Still, Bayezid was remarkably patient, offering once again to allow his brother to renounce his claim and retire in Jerusalem with a pension. But again, Chum refused, and this time managed to escape to Rhodes, where he asked the Knights of St. John, a Catholic order based on the island, to protect him. In return for their aid, Chum promised what he termed eternal peace between the Ottomans and all of Christendom were he to regain the Ottoman throne. Honestly, this should seem very familiar to those of you who remember the recently departed Byzantines. Civil war where a rival claimant makes wild promises to really anyone who will help him. The result being that foreign powers throw more resources into the war, meaning a longer and bloodier conflict. And if the rival actually wins, now they're suddenly burdened with, they burden the empire with the outlandish promises they made in order to get that office. And so it's really not a great situation for anyone. And, you know, in general, the Ottomans have done a pretty good job of avoiding this. They've had one civil war before, but... Uh, Compared to the Byzantines, that's not too bad, but now they're really falling into the exact same kind of patterns that the Byzantines fell into before. But luckily for the Ottomans, 
the Knights of St. John could see the writing on the wall. They hardly had the manpower needed to make any serious challenge to Bayezid, and so they chose the more prudent path, secretly contacting Bayezid to cut a deal. The Karamanids, who had sided with Cham, also chose to negotiate and accept Ottoman rule. Though it seems this may have only happened in 1487, it's not quite clear when this happened, but sometime around here. While these negotiations were all ongoing, events were still moving forward in Wallachia, as once again Moldavia invaded in order to place Vlad, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name again, on the throne once again. Now, Bessarab wrote a year before that about the situation, quote, Since Stephen the Great has ruled in Moldavia, he has not liked any ruler of Wallachia. He did not wish to live with Radu the Fair, nor with Bessarab Laosha, nor with me. I do not know who can live with him." End quote. Well, that was, frankly, an understandable sentiment. Uh, it is clear that Stephen the Great, as well as the Hungarians in the past, they keep installing different rulers in Wallachia and hoping that one of them will stay a kind of loyal ally, but as we've seen time and time again, the geopolitics of Wallachia make it really impossible. And so with this seemingly endless rotation of voivodas in Wallachia, it was a question, who could Stephen the Great live with? Well, this time one thing was different because as Stephen made sure Besarab Teparash Chiltanara was dead at the end of it, and so that, well, answered the question, at least made it sure that uh, Besarab could not retake the throne. Because, well, surely Stephen was really fed up with these invasions and fed up with Wallachia at this point. But his frustration wasn't about to end because shortly after winning the throne, Vlad recognized the same geopolitical reality as his predecessor and, well, allied with the Ottomans. And so, well, we saw a repeat. Every time Stephen the Great installs a ruler in Wallachia, they end up as a part of an Ottoman, basically end up as an Ottoman vassal because it doesn't matter how much they want to resist the Ottomans and be a part of a grand anti-Ottoman coalition. Wallachia just does not have the strength or the kind of geopolitical situation and allies to make that a reality. So you kind of have, uh, well, let's say Stephen the Great is sort of Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. He's not getting anywhere with uh, spending all this effort to install new rulers of Wallachia. Now, of course, one reason the Wallachians couldn't resist the Ottomans was that Hungarian attention remained elsewhere as their war with Austria was resuming. In 1482, Matthias took several key Austrian fortresses and cities. The Pope was understandably concerned about the growing Ottoman threat, particularly after their attack on southern Italy, and begged King Matthias to allow him to broker peace. But the Hungarian king refused and pressed his advantage in Austria. In fact, the very next year, King Matthias of Hungary signed a five-year truce with the Ottomans, one which explicitly placed Wallachia and Moldavia in the Ottoman sphere of influence. In essence, Hungary seemed to be abandoning these two states with any hope of leading a major Ottoman, major sort of resistance to the Ottomans. Matthias was concerned with conquering Austria and Bohemia and clearly felt that he could simply placate the Ottomans while he took advantage of the situation elsewhere. While these events were occurring in the north, negotiations between the Knights of Rhodes and Bayezid were fruitful. They had signed a peace treaty with the Ottomans as well as an agreement to hold Cham in captivity 
in return for an annual payment of 40,000 ducats. A pretty good deal. Uh, Now, to be fair, they actually did, with all this money, treat the prisoner well. But it was clearly an excellent deal for Rhodes. They got a lot of money just to hold on to Cham Sultan. But still, they sort of felt that Cham would be better kept farther away from the Ottomans, ultimately, because at this point, you know, the guy became very valuable, and it actually was nice to hold on to him because they got a lot of money out of it. So they didn't want him to die or be murdered or assassinated or anything by the Ottomans. And so he was ultimately sent to France and arrived in Nice in October of 1482. Chalmers now had quite a quite a life, right? He's growing up in Constantinople, spent some time in Anatolia and Egypt. He performed the Hajj to uh, Mecca, and then now he's gone to Rhodes and over to France. But the king of France categorically refused to allow a Muslim on his lands, and so Cham ultimately had to be taken to the Duchy of Savoy, which was part of the Holy Roman Empire kind of another reminder that uh, how sort of intolerant the West was actually compared to the Ottoman Empire, that the Ottoman of course, Empire had plenty of Christian and Jewish uh, subjects, but in France, the idea of even allowing a Muslim to live in the country was a sort of anathema to the king. Now, at this point, there was a kind of developing disagreement over just what was to be done with this prisoner. Now, Sultan of the Mamluks, Matthias Corvinus, and the Pope wanted to use Cham to foster a civil war in the Ottoman Empire. Not quite sure why Matthias was on this side, considering he had just signed a peace treaty with them, but I guess, well, he figured an Ottoman civil war would further distract them and make it even easier for him to do what he wished in Central and Eastern Europe. On the other side, the Venetians, the Knights of St. John and Rhodes, and the King of Naples saw Cham as an insurance policy against further Ottoman aggression. So instead of just encouraging him to start a civil war, they would hold on. And so if things got bad with the Ottomans, they could say, ah, you should stop this war right away or we will release Cham and he will start a civil war. Bayezid's spies ensured that he was at least somewhat aware of these discussions, and the situation even led to him attempting to assassinate his half-brother and rival, but that failed. So for now, Bayezid simply has to live with the situation, knowing that his brother is out there somewhere, even if he's not in a great position. Still, Bayezid was feeling confident enough at this point to take advantage of the new geopolitical situation with the Hungarians. And so even before these events, he was already kind of consolidating. For example, making Ivan Chernoyevich in Zeta one of his vassals. Uh, so kind of further cementing Ottoman rule in the southwestern Balkans. Furthermore, in 1484, the Ottomans invade Moldavia with the help of the Crimean Khaganate and with full knowledge that really no one is going to stop them because they had signed this agreement with uh, Hungary that put Moldavia in their sphere of influence, and, well, Poland wasn't in any particular situation to exert its kind of beliefs or its, uh, its feelings about the situation as well. In this war, the Ottomans successfully captured Chilea and Chitatea Alba, the two Moldavian fortresses on the Black Sea which had been fought over for so many years by the Ottomans and Wallachians. With this conquest, Moldavia suffered an immense economic blow as it no longer had access to trade routes which had helped it prosper via these Black Sea uh, ports. 
In addition, with this conquest, the Black Sea became, as historian Jonathan Engels termed it, a, quote, Turkish lake, with no other power being able to really challenge the Ottomans there. Now, the Ottomans had now taken most of their important territories and burned the capital to the ground, and so, well, Moldavia survived, but it was economically weakened and far more militarily vulnerable, as scorched earth earth tactics on the long march were no longer working now that the Ottomans had secure bases right on their border. So it was much easier for the Ottomans to supply their armies in Moldavian territories. And so the kind of greatest tactic that Moldavia had relied on up to this point was no longer going to work. Still, Moldavia fought on. And Stephen decided that he now had no choice but to submit to the Polish king, as he was the only remaining power with the power or desire to help Moldavia in any way. Now, Poland had thus far stayed largely out of Ottoman affairs in the region, but this recent encroachment threatened them far too much for them to stay silent. And so Stephen went to meet the king, Polish king, uh, Casimir IV, and to swear loyalty. Then, with Polish backing, Stephen succeeded in winning some battles against the Ottomans in 1486, pushing them out of his territory, but still failing to retake the vital fortresses in the Black Sea. Still, while he refused to break his peace with the Ottomans, Matthias did reinforce Moldavia somewhat, and so granted Stephen two Transylvanian towns to help kind of bolster his position, get him a little more money, some more troops, all that kind of stuff. As the Ottomans withdrew, along with a pretender they had tried to install as a new ruler of Moldavia, the war quieted down, although no formal peace treaty was signed. Stephen's recent victories had brought him enough power that he could rule again, although he was severely weakened and chastised by his losses, as well as his new subservience to the King of Poland. In other words, the proud and mighty Stephen the Great of Moldavia was at a low point. But Poland did step up in response to Stephen's actions. A Polish force entered Moldavia in late 1485 and defeated a Tatar army there. This effectively meant that the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, yes, that was happening by now, I mostly just refer to them as Poland, it's complicated. Anyways, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was now at war with the Ottoman Empire, although it didn't mean much because at this point, neither side was really willing or able to escalate to a major conflict. Now, a quick note, two years prior to all these events, in 1484, John Castriotti II gave up his fight against the Ottomans and returned to Italy, marrying the daughter of Lazar Brankovic. Remember, John was the son of uh, Skanderbeg. In that same region, 1485, saw the death of Vuk Gurgevich, the titular despot of Serbia. Now, he was succeeded in his title and role by his cousin, uh, George Brankovic, But, well, both men served Hungary, and there hadn't been a good time to mention that until now, but other important events were kind of occurring at this time as the Ottomans were invading Moldavia, the ongoing war between Hungary and Austria. All this is going on, but just a quick note here that, you know, the Albanians were, like, really properly giving up, and, you know, the the title despot of Serbia still existed, even if it really meant nothing, and all the people who held it ruled were, were ruled by Hungary. Anyways, 
Matthias occupied the Austrian capital of Vienna in 1485 after a five-month siege. The city surrendered when its fate seemed sealed, and so its citizens negotiated the maintenance of their privileges in exchange for their surrender. Matthias immediately moved his capital there and called on all the lords of Austria to come and swear fealty to him. But Emperor Frederick was still Holy Roman Emperor and fought on. In fact, by early 1486, he was solidifying his control by orchestrating the election of his son Maximilian to be declared King of the Romans, which, you remember, that title was a sort of waiting room. It was the, an indication that you were probably going to be elected Holy Roman Emperor in the future. Both Matthias and Vladislaus, who both considered themselves King of Bohemia, though Vladislaus really controlled it, were not invited to the ceremony where Maximilian was crowned King of the Romans. Matthias attempted to form an alliance against the election of Maximilian as he himself wished to be King of the Romans and ultimately Holy Roman Emperor. However, the estates of Bohemia rejected the alliance and Vladislaus recognized Maximilian, giving up his position. Matthias may have won Vienna, but he had firmly lost any hope of becoming Holy Roman Emperor. Still, the war dragged on as Matthias won victory after victory, slowly conquering more of Austria's vital fortresses until a six-month armistice was signed in 1487, ending the war. In the meantime, some fighting was ongoing between Poland and the Tatars, culminating in a Polish victory at the Battle of... Oof, Polish words... Kopsterjesen, something like this, in 1487. Uh, if you want to see the exact spelling, you can look it up. But although the Poles had indicated a desire to launch a crusade against the Ottomans, well, pressure from the Golden Horde, a breakaway state from the, the old Ottoman hordes, uh, was kind of made it too difficult. There was too much pressure from this old Mongol sort of remnant state for Poland and Lithuania to really send their soldiers south and engage the Ottomans. By 1488, well, things went a bit quiet. Hungary and the Ottoman Empire signed yet another two-year peace deal, despite the fact that the peace with Austria meant that Matthias didn't really have anywhere else to focus his energies, though most likely Matthias was interested in consolidating his gains during these two years. One important element of this agreement was that it did actually forbid the Ottomans from invading Wallachia or Moldavia, so clearly kind of the Hungarians had a slight leg up in these negotiations and wanted to kind of push the Ottomans back a little bit. Um, and this could explain why there were also no new developments in the war between the Ottomans and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, even in the East, because the Ottomans couldn't really get there. Perhaps Sultan Bayezid was content with this kind of calm and content with giving up the possibility of invading Wallachia or Moldavia, because... He was more focused on running the empire than expanding it compared to other sultans. You know, Bayezid's father may have been a great conqueror, but Bayezid II really just was more interested in domestic affairs than going off and fighting his wars. Anyways, this kind of quiet continued for several years. Although Venice did purchase Cyprus from the last king of Cyprus in 1489, a rare victory for that state in the eastern Mediterranean after having fought and lost to the Ottomans for so long. Also in 1489, Cham, remember, he was transferred to Rome on the Pope's orders. So his kind of world tour continues. But nobody had quite decided really what to do with him. And so, well, 
he's just going to continue his tour of the prisons of Europe and the Middle East. So good for you, John. Enjoy your prison tour. But still, his status is a bit ambiguous. As the world around the Ottomans settled down even more, that two-year truce was signed between the Ottomans and the Poles in 1489 as well. And seeing the fact that neither state really seemed to have the desire or the resources to mount an invasion of the other, this doesn't really mean much, but okay, the formal war between the Ottomans and Poland ended. Now, crucially, this agreement recognized Ottoman control over those crucial Moldavian ports that the Ottomans had captured on the Black Sea, which, you can understand why, infuriated Stephen of Moldavia, who decided to break his original deal with Poland and change his allegiance to Hungary in response to this betrayal. But, well, let's say Stephen had bad timing because the very next year, Matthias Corvinus finally died. He was only 47 years old, but gout managed to take him. Despite really not being that old, Matthias had left an indelible mark on the European stage. The Hungarian state he took over was weak following a series of ineffectual rulers. Remember Ladislaus the Posthumous? Anyone? Anyone? Well, after 32 years of rule, Hungary was now a European superpower. Matthias had transformed the country. Although the way he accomplished this was, again in large part, to avoid conflict with the only other power in the region that could have crushed him, the Ottomans. True, Hungary clashed with the Ottomans in some minor ways during his reign, but Matthias largely focused his attention on dominating Wallachia and Moldavia, where he failed, dominating Bohemia, where he had mixed success, and dominating Austria, where he succeeded, but, well, more on that later. During his reign, he brought the culture of the Renaissance to Hungary, established great libraries, created a professional military force with the Black Army, and brought forward administrative reforms to unify and modernize the country. And yet, in the years before his death, he knew he was in trouble. He had no legitimate sons. His first wife had died before their marriage was consummated. His second wife died in childbirth, losing the baby in the process. And the third marriage, to Beatrice of Naples, produced no children. Thus, on his death, Matthias had only one son, John an illegitimate son with an Austrian woman. His main concern was over a conflict between his wife and his son for power. Now he had wanted his son named King of the Romans to strengthen his legitimacy, but as we know, that failed. He had even proposed withdrawing from Austria in exchange for Emperor Frederick recognizing his son as such. And so when Matthias died, John was only 17 and was immediately preyed upon by the nobles of Hungary. Matthias had been a strong king, which was arguably good for the state, but it was not good for the nobles. We've seen this in Bulgarian history time and time again, right? A powerful Khan or Tsar expands the state borders, but they contract upon the, their death as centralization of power draws a backlash from the nobles who quickly try to reassert their rights, harming the power of the central state and losing interest in sort of maintaining all those gains. And so John was essentially tricked into giving up his claim to the Hungarian throne and lost nearly all of his father's wealth in the process. In the meantime, a Hungarian diet elected not him, but Vladislaus of Bohemia to be the new king of Hungary. 
Remember, Matthias had fought against Vladislaus and tried to ally with him against Frederick of Austria later. So, it's an interesting development, let's say. Now, I found a great map of Europe on the death of Matthias. It's in Hungarian, but you can more or less recognize all the state and place names. So, if you want to get a real sense for what our map looks like, what Europe looks like just at this moment, go to the website, check it out. It should really give you a good feel for the European situation at this moment. Um, I'll also post a photo I took of a statue of Matthias Corvinus in the city of his birth, which is now Cluj, the capital of Transylvania in Romania, uh, as well as another shot of me in front of the building in which Matthias was born, holding a sign that is an inside joke about a particular region of Serbia. Don't worry about it. It was for a friend's birthday many years ago. So that's where I'm leaving off. With the death of Matthias, the election of Vladislaus, and, well, it remains to be seen how Frederick of Austria will respond to all this, how Bayezid II will respond, and how every power in the region will react to this new rapid change of the situation in Hungary. Now, one thing seems certain, that quiet that had fallen over the Balkans and Eastern Europe over the past few years doesn't seem likely to last. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And as always, Uspeh.